you know, we've, we've almost hit a thousand. Our record is in the mid nine hundreds uh, attending. So it's pretty neat. Attending one event, the mid nine hundred people attending one event of yours. Yes, sir. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Meet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers, to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I am your host, Jordan Wayla, and this week we are talking to another smart property management entrepreneur today, Rich Drake, CEO of the Houston franchise of Renner Warehouse. In the last four years, Rich and his team have built out the largest franchise in the nation in terms of revenue, growth rate, and number of units, specifically being a Renner's Warehouse franchise. In this interview today, we're going to talk a little bit about how they market and specifically how they've been leveraging local networking events to help grow the business. So let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Rich. Man, Jordan, thanks for inviting me. I've always been told I had a face for radio, so I think this is perfect for me. Well, that makes two of us, man. It's a great fit. So, Rich, give me some background here. I could ask you how you got started with the Renner's Warehouse, but I really, really want to know is how did you get started in business at all? I know that you have a background in the Navy. What kind of led you down the entrepreneurial path? Why was that a fit for you? Yeah, so I got out of college, went to OCS, Officer Candidate School, became a pilot for the Navy for about six years. I was just about ready to get out and my now current partner reached out to me to invest in a flip so it was kind of the flip this house thing about 20 years ago there really wasn't much of that going on it wasn't on tv yet it wasn't a a business model that people understood Uh, so i actually financed his first deal i got a percentage of the profit and i was highly impressed with that Uh, got out of the navy plans were to be a an airline pilot uh, and they were laying off so you know, it, it was timing for me, so I got into investing, and he and I grew uh, one of the biggest and now the longest-running Homevestors franchise in the nation, closing in on 1,600 deals, almost 20 years. Uh, we're in 97, so it's just right at 20 years. Several years ago, we decided to uh, start scaling the property management side of our business. We owned, at one point, a few hundred rentals that we had acquired over the years, and we did it the absolute wrong way. We we buy, fix, and sell, and the ones we couldn't sell, we kept for rentals. So we ended up with this big pile of sludge, and we call it sludge. You know, the, all the bad houses were our rentals, and we were doing a pretty poor job of managing them ourselves. So we we farmed it out to a property management company, and they were worse than we were. So we brought it back in house, refocused on doing it properly and building processes, and, and we were doing pretty well. Uh, then ran into Renner's Warehouse. I was at a networking event, saw it in a magazine. They ran an ad in Personal Real Estate Investor Magazine. Reached out to them. Was very impressed with their ability to operate uh, and scale. You know, growing up in the 80s, you know, I wasn't a, you know, a computer whiz, so to speak. Uh, so I was unfamiliar with, you know, sales funnels and CRM softwares and things like that. And they really had have jump-started us on, on the route to spend money on advertising, do things you need to do to, to get people in the door, and then how to, how to take them down the road to become a customer versus 
versus not versus meet them one time and forget about them. Well, the follow-up is important. You know, how to, how to drip somebody's important, all these different things. So I was really impressed with Brenner's Warehouse in that respect and, and their way they operated their business and, and the scale that they had built. Uh, so and that's what took us to Brenner's Warehouse and where we are today. So you were already sold into the idea of working with the franchise, getting a value add from the organization, et cetera. So you had some comfortability going from home investors into Renner's Warehouse. Organizationally, for your franchise, how long did it take you to ramp your Renner's Warehouse property management business as opposed to the ramp time on the home investors side of things? Yeah, so... You know, the home investors is a completely different model. And don't get me wrong, you can scale a flip business. We have not scaled it. So ours, although we've done a lot of deals over the years, we're still doing the same amount in, you know, these years, sometimes less than we've done in the past per year. You know, you think about the type of business a property management is. It's kind of like a, an insurance company. Add a customer, add a customer, add a customer. And you build up a, a cash flow over time. With flipping houses, you're buy, fix, sell, buy, fix, sell, buy, wholesale, whatever. Well, if you stop doing that, you're not going to grow. So the only way to grow that is to get more acquisitions people and start ramping your advertising. And and for the most part, that's not done in that industry very, very well or very often. Uh, It's a big, big ask for a business owner to let go of that purchase process and to to start trusting other people to do this, whereas property management, it's much easier to scale because you're you're bolting on another employee to do a reasonably repetitive task, you know, renewals, uh, rent collection, accounting. So it's not necessarily you know letting go of somebody to say, hey, go offer two hundred thousand dollars on that of my money on some some house down the road based on your analysis. Property management much easier to scale than you know something like flipping houses. That totally makes sense. Let's talk about how it has scaled. Let's fast forward to today. Where is the your Renner's Warehouse business at today? Just walk me through some numbers. So when we started, we were somewhat small. We 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 dumped our houses into the system, and we had less than a hundred rentals at the time, seventy, eighty, somewhere like that. Uh, so it takes time, you know. Obviously, with a brand new company to get a foothold in a city. You know, that's, that's why Renner's Ross has kind of changed their focus where they're buying someone in a city instead of opening from scratch uh, because you, you have you have some revenue to start with. It took a while. So we starting in, let's see, it was December of 13 was the first time we advertised. And since then, we've doubled every year uh, in, in units and, and more than doubled in revenue. Uh, we've become a little more efficient with... Uh, you know, different types of fees and things. So our revenue is growing a little faster than our size. Uh, we're now eleven sixty, close to twelve hundred. If you looked at our uh, at our number today, we're probably in in the neighborhood of eleven sixty, eleven seventy. Uh, with the ninety percent of those are single family houses. 
So talk to me about that in the context of your local market. What kind of market penetration do you think is achievable? How many management companies can Houston support? Obviously, it's a huge metro. I interviewed Noel the other day, and we were talking about the penetration that the original Renner's Warehouse franchise uh, founded by Britton Hayden had achieved in the Minneapolis-St. Paul market, a crazy level of penetration. What are kind of the, the goals or, or ambitions that you have in the Houston market? Well, I think what Brenton did was really smart is he went after the unintentional landlord, the, the one-off guy that no one's really paying attention to because, you know, there's numbers that float around in our space of 80 to 85% of properties are self-managed by the landlord, which, you know, if you look at Australia, which is a much more mature market for property management, it's like 90% professional managed. Yeah, um, it's flipped, right? A lot of that's driven by regulation. There's almost a million rental properties in Houston. So if we had 10,000 under management, we'd be at 1%. So, you know, it's just an insane amount of rental property available out there. We we get along really well with a lot of the, the other management companies. We're members of NARPM and, you know, we share ideas. We share, you know, it's kind of a, a you know, rising tide lifts all ships mentality. We don't consider each other competition so much we're competing to try to explain to the guy out there hey you shouldn't be doing this yourself go do what you do go buy more properties don't sit there and, and, and try to do it yourself because you leave that leave, leave those low value tasks to somebody that does them every day and go spend time with your family or buy more houses or go do your job that you know how to do go go engineer oil and gas or whatever that might be Sure, of course. You you jointly with other companies want to educate the consumer, create that progressive vision for the utility of the property management function, et cetera. I get that. But in fairness, the counterbalance to that is that Renner's Warehouse has had an impact on the market. The way that Renner's Warehouse is operating is different than your typical property management company. And some local property managers have felt a little bit of pressure by having a Renner's Warehouse presence in their market, both in terms of the footprint that Renner's Warehouse has in terms of advertising, but also pricing, introducing the ubiquity of the flat fee pricing model, etc. So let's get into brass tacks about how Renner's Warehouse is different. A lot of times when I ask people that question, people say, we're number one, service, we care about our customers, et cetera. What are, in your view, the most meaningful points of differentiation about Renner's Warehouse versus every other company in the market? Yeah. So, you know, if you're talking about service and differentiators and, you know, the tenant warranty, um, you know, rent feeder, which is our syndication tool to, to list more houses, you know, we can talk for 45 minutes about differentiators. But the, the real thing is, is you know, the guy that's been with Joe Blow Property Management Company has never really been happy. Didn't really realize that there's other companies out there until they turn on Sports Talk and they hear Renner's Warehouse every single day and they figure out, I have an option. And you're absolutely right. We take properties from other management companies every single day. I mean, we call them management takeovers where they're managed by someone else. And, you know, heck, we know the person, the, you know, the people at those companies and our people just call the person they know and say, hey, I got another one. Um, and there's occasion where, you know, we're, we have a, a customer that doesn't like the way we do business and they want to go to them and we call them and say, here's the stuff you need. Um, but for the most part, you're right. We do impact those other companies quite a bit because of, you know, our, our presence in, in radios, 
mostly. The way we handle our SEO, we're, we're always page one. We're always at the top of the map on Google. Um, and then, of course, our networking events, which you alluded to earlier, you know, we're putting six or 700 people in a room every month and to talk about real estate. And when, when it's time for that wholesaler or that flipper to, to take the next step into being a landlord and being a professional investor and start building wealth, they're going to call us first. Love it. Makes sense. And I want to get into the events thing more. Before we do that, though, radio, that's the flash piece. It's the sizzle. It's the thing that is noticeable, but also disorienting and confusing. Like, how are these Renner's Warehouse guys making this work? Nobody else is doing radio at scale. On occasion, I'll have people say, yeah, I've done radio. And they've, they've done something nominal, but not at scale. What was your relationship or your orientation with radio prior to working with Renner's Warehouse? Had you ever had any run any any radio ads? What was it like for you to kind of work through working with radio as an advertising medium early on? Well, in, in the Homevestor side, they tried radio in the past and failed pretty miserably. They do pretty well on print. Uh, as far as outdoor, they do well on TV, but they've never had real success with radio. And I think there's a couple of keys to it. One is, you know, and I, and I hate to be an advertiser for, for Tracy, but Media Bridge Advertising is they've partnered with Renner's Rouse. For a side note, I have a, a friend, he's a business coach, and he's done his first radio run. He spent uh, $3,500 his first month. He had 900 impressions. I said, you should have called Tracy over at Media Bridge. She got him $2.1 million for the same money. And, you, you know, so we're getting, we're getting more for our money than most advertisers can. The second part of that is we always use endorsers. So you can't just run a pre-recorded spot that says, call Renner's Warehouse with a pretty jingle. We're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Nobody really, you know, that there's just, that's every ad. But when the local DJ that you've been listening to for 20 years says, call my buddies over at Renner's Warehouse. We were playing golf the other day, and I know they do a great job because they sure as hell aren't playing golf. You know, they identify with that. And people will deal, deal with you because they'll say, hey, my friend Lance said to give you a call. Oh, you're friends with Lance. Well, I've been listening to him on the radio. So uh, that, that endorsement is a key part of it, I think. What is your current service area and how targeted or broad are the different types of radio advertising that you do? Yeah, so radio is, you know, scattershot, right? You can't, you can't tell it not to go all over town. You know, we didn't do a whole lot of radio when we were small. We wanted to be big enough to handle you know, and, and for people that know Houston, we're from Conroe to Galveston to Katy to Baytown, and we take the entire market. We have 16 leasing agents that cover certain areas. So we can cover any area. And as far as, you know, in today's day and age, we all know with, with the cloud and everything is web-based, it's irrelevant where you're located and where you can handle business. As long as you have, you know, that guy on the ground for the leasing and for the maintenance that can get there in a reasonable amount of time. So you know, we, we can handle the entire DMA. Awesome. So it is a broad mass market tool. You guys have made it work. I think that's really interesting, big distinctive about what you guys have done. But on, from a cost perspective, you mentioned your coach put down $3,500. The spend is is significant to keep up with it. Was it the sort of thing where you were able to see a, an easy, profitable arbitrage up front, or was it something where you had to invest one, two, three months in before you actually saw the kind of return that you were hoping for? Sure. So, you know, obviously we started out small, somewhere around that 3000 range. 
Uh, and then what we do is as as revenue went up, we raised the advertising. You know, I don't know how much you want to get in the numbers, but we're doing a significantly larger amount than 3,000 now. We're generating a whole bunch of leads and we have a, a team that takes the lead calls and assigns them to agents. You know, so not only do you have to account for the cost of the advertising, but you have to account for the team that is taking those calls and processing those calls. I took the calls at the beginning. Now that was my part of my duties when we were small, your business owner, you do what you got to do, right? So now we have people that handle that. So, so the labor costs, those, those folks that are handling it, are you doing a um, traditional ISA model of, of a couple of guys that are just doing nothing but phone and emails and then delegating out to leasing agents that do the onsite? We, we actually have a call center that takes our lead calls. Um, it's an outsourced uh, deal now for us. It's pretty recent, but what we've found is, you know, the guy that calls on Saturday at four o'clock in the afternoon, if you call him at 402 on a Saturday, that, that lead almost always closes because he's shocked that you called him back on a Saturday or a Sunday. Response time. Yeah. So when someone calls at 10 o'clock at night, normally, uh, most property managers would call him the first thing in the morning or not at all. You know, we deal with that too, but they have certain hours. If it's between 9 a.m. and 8 p.m. on a Saturday, they call them back. If it's between 9 and 5 on Sunday, they call them back. If it's 9 to 9 on weekdays, something like that, I, I can't remember the actual hours, but we call people back after hours and before hours. There's a lot of the morning drive stuff too. You know, on the radio, we'll get a call at 6.30 in the morning. We answer the phone. And most people are there going to get voicemail and hear back, you know, maybe the same day. Well, the, the, our closing ratio has gone up significantly because uh, we have a third party that they're manned 24-7. So we're, get, we're getting response times way down to our customers. Is this a corporate asset that you're working with or, or no, did you source this a, on your own? it's a third party. Uh, it was important to me that they are U.S.-based. They're actually based in Houston. Uh, and, and these are the folks that are handling higher-level customer service for the Verizons of the world and the, you know people like that where they're handling complex problems. When you escalate a problem with one of your, you know, your electricity company or your phone company or whoever, you're not calling that company. You're calling a call center. And these folks are the ones that are, I guess, the cream of the crop of those. So they're able to... They operate our CRM. Uh, they do outbound calls, so they do our follow-up calls every day. Oh, wow. The, wow. Neat part, the neat part of the follow-ups is we're able to vary the times that they call out. So based on the day of the week, they do calls in the morning on certain days of the week. They do calls in the afternoon certain days, and they do calls after 5.30 certain days. So we catch more people on those follow-ups because we're not calling them every, every morning like we, we used to. Because we had an employee from eight thirty to five thirty handling it, now we've expanded our hours, and it's been a it's been a pretty nice bump. Wow! So this is really worth dissecting here, guys. The, the segmentation that Rich is talking about. First off, when you call Verizon, you're talking to the lowest tier CSR until you say something like, "I want to cancel my account." And then you're getting transferred over to a higher skill individual that's going to work you over and do everything that they can to prevent you from canceling for revenue retention purposes. So within a third party call center, there's a segmentation of skill, but additionally. 
Normally, what you're talking about is the segmentation of the function because most of the outsourcing that I have seen thus far with our clients is outsourcing just that first touch, right? That that body that's going to pick up the phone and say, hey, this is so-and-so with Renner's Warehouse. Would you like to leave a voicemail, et cetera? Basically, when does the handoff happen? At what point would this third-party call center be handing off the call to somebody else? So they never hand a call off to, to us. They hand the lead directly to an agent once the lead says, I'm ready to meet with an agent and get an analysis of my property and I'm ready to rent the house. If they say, my house is already occupied and I'm ready for you guys to take over, then they change the status in the CRM and then our in-house folks just search that status daily and they see that and then they take it over from there. And if it's a multiple property owner, someone that owns 20 or 30 houses, uh, they change a status that we see where we get somebody on the phone that can talk shop uh, because they may want to talk for or come into the office and, and interview us and things like that. So we don't want to lose a, anything over five units they take their hands off of because we know we need a, a higher level discussion with, that, with, a, with an investor versus a homeowner. What's so interesting is that, Rich, I know you are a discriminating consumer in this regard, meaning that a lot of the folks that we see have interest in BDMs orientate around sales being an unpleasant task or function that they're wanting to make go away. For some folks, that's not the case. They really take it seriously. They're a pro at it themselves, and now they want to take it to the next level through scale. You would fall into the latter category. You care very much about this process. You're not just trying to make it go away. And in light of that additional scrutiny, you're saying this actually works better. So the question I have for you, Rich, is how do you know that these folks are doing their job? How can you trust these folks to be representing your brand? How do you audit the quality of the work, et cetera? Yeah, so we have a process for that as well. And they record every call. So we listen in on calls uh, weekly. We actually send somebody... I usually send my chief of operations to their office and he'll stand behind them when they do their follow-ups for a few hours just to hear them. What we do is we can analyze. We've got X amount of leads and normally we assign X percentage and now we've gotten Y amount of leads and we've got we've assigned X percentage. Uh, so we, we're assigning more leads as a percentage of the number of leads coming in. And the agents aren't screaming that these are bad leads. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have some wrinkles, you know, hey, this is not my area. Or, hey, this lead, you know, they're, they're a management takeover. We should, I should have went to the office. You know, those things, are they happened at the beginning much more often than they do now. But they still, they, they are going to make mistakes. They're not able to answer to the depth of what a, a licensed agent could answer or myself or Mark could answer. They just can't. But they, they understand how to direct the conversation to, hey, the expert is your agent. That's who you need to talk to. Let me get you to your agent. That's their, been their job their whole life. So they're, they're very good at getting someone to agree to meet with our agents. And our closing ratios are still up. They're not decreasing. So the agents are still closing the deals. They're just closing more deals. So what about labor cost? Uh, we, pay, we pay per minute uh, of call. So it's probably slightly cheaper than having an employee because with employee, we have to have an office, a computer, paid vacation, holiday, sick time, workman's comp, you name it. We just pay a flat fee per minute and they, they track it by the second and 
it's, it's actually less than having one employee. So it's not an additional cost for us. How many leasing agents do you guys have? 16. Before we go on, I want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Growth Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur, if you're interested in leveling up your sales and marketing game, and if you want to go pro and network with other best-in-class entrepreneurs and stay on the bleeding edge of the industry, you need to be at the PM Grow Summit. We truly bring in the best of the best, and you can get your ticket now by going to www.pmgrowsummit.com and using the coupon code JORDAN, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, to get $100 off your ticket. See you there. Transitioning over to events, this is one of the things that I found most interesting when we initially spoke at last year's PM Growth Summit, talking about the local event strategy that you have been utilizing. Um, what is it? What kind of results has it driven for you? And how has that program changed over time? Yes, yeah, so we partnered with a company called Jet Lending. They, they were having a small event. We were having a small event. I say small, you know, two to three hundred you know, smaller, those are pretty big events. And what we were able to do is, is, you know, we've known each other for almost 20 years. So, you know, a hard money lender is a perfect person for a property manager to partner with. There's no chance of competition. And it's a perfect fit because they're dealing with investors every day. We're dealing with the same clientele. So our goal there was twofold. One was to have a continued relationship with our current owners and get them to understand that, hey, you need more property. You don't need to own one, you need to own 100. The cheapest way you can add units to your portfolio is get one of your owners to add another property. You probably get a commission from it, helping them buy it. There's another property, not, not another owner, much easier. And the second part is just new business as well. So every month we, we offload our entire new customer list into our email list, any lead that we get goes into our email list. So when we email out for the new event, they're added to the list. Same thing with Jet Lending. Their people are added to the list. And then we have about 25, 26 vendors, uh, and they cover almost all the cost of the event. Uh, so they're paying to be vendors at our event because it's the biggest one in town. We're, we're lucky in Houston. You know, you can you could eat free every night in Houston with a networking event, a real estate-related networking event. We have a great presence of of events, good content. And that's something we try to do is continually provide good technical data. We'll usually talk about something about building wealth in real estate, you know, how to screen a tenant, things like that that are gonna that are gonna get people in a mindset of property management. And then Jet, a lot of times they'll do, you know, how to make an offer on buying a house, you know, things like that. So we always provide good technical content, free food, free beer, and a live band at the end of the night. So it's a pretty fun event anyway. You know, we've, we've almost hit 1,000. Our record is in the mid-900s uh, attending, so it's pretty neat. Attending one event, the mid-900 people attending one event of yours. Yes, sir. How often are you doing these? We do them every month with the exception of December, where we go dark in December, kind of like Vegas, right? So we do uh, the third Wednesday of every night at a place called the Redneck Country Club. We're actually going to be there tonight. I my 50th birthday party at the Redneck Country Club. We sponsored the Bellamy Brothers tonight. So Renner's Warehouse is the sponsor. And uh, we'll be in the VIP. They call it the VIR, Very Important Rednecks. 
so it's a great place. So they got a nice stick. They 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 cater to the the upper end of rednecks, right? It's a neat venue. Uh, they have a great sound system. That was the biggest problem with our previous venue is sound. So we can get our message out. It's a neat place to be. It's a it's a novel place for people to go. You know, they have a, they have great food. They have good selection of, of nice whiskeys and cigars if you want. Uh, so it's a it's a good place. I can only imagine you have logistical problems. Rich, I run events. A thousand people at a monthly event for a local company like this. Are you ever having a thousand people that are supposed to be in an audience type format? I mean, what kind of a restaurant is going to have room for that many people? Yeah, so it's more like a bar. It, it, they have a restaurant, but inside will probably hold seven or eight hundred, maybe a maybe a thousand. And then there's an outside patio area that's that's expansive. Um, you know, they they've had Willie Nelson there. That's how you know the place can hold a couple thousand. What what ends up happening is there's two or three hundred people inside actually listening, and then the rest are out networking. And we're fine with that. I don't need you to to listen to me tell you how to how to buy a house if you already know how to buy a house or you're you've been investing for ten years. You're my customer. You've been to our event 10 times, 11 times. Let them be out there with the vendors, um, getting some value from those vendors and, and signing up with a new, get them, finding them a new roofer or a new plumber or, or a, you know, self-directed IRA vendor. You know, those kind of things are, are of great value to our, to our customers and Jet's customers. I don't care how many of them are inside or outside. You know, it makes you feel cool if they all want to hear you talk, but... You know, not everybody cares about the, the technical knowledge. They're there to network and uh, meet other investors. Now, absolutely. I, mean, I couldn't agree more. Brand bias, brand affinity, et cetera. But what's interesting is that you're not thinking of a cost center. I could think of talking about this with uh, other clients and they're thinking, okay, well, hey, these people are already clients. Why am I going to feed them chicken wings and, and free beer? Let's go down to brass tacks, break this down from top to bottom. First off, how are you driving that many people? Let's say, actually, let's go a step before that. So let's go back to that. Let's go back to your comment real quick before we do that why do you want to buy beer for your customer and i'll tell you why i have a customer named john he's got four or five houses and we completely dropped the ball a tenant moved out of the house we didn't do the move out and his house was vacant for a couple of months it happens right you're going to fail your customers occasionally you're going to make a mistake we have oh, it was funny my my coo yesterday said we have 32 people working for us if everyone makes one mistake per month we have a big pile of complaints, right? So we, we have to understand that people are human. They're going to mess up. And it just got put in the wrong column on a spreadsheet or whatever happened. And that house was vacant for a couple of months. You know, I, I sat down with him. We talked. We made it right. We fixed his problem. And he's not going anywhere because he is a, a brand ambassador because he comes every month to that event and enjoys it. And we sit and lean up against the bar and have a beer together and He's referring people to us after we drop the ball on his house. This kind of stuff is is for the, you know, we call it the loyalty ladder, you know, for a customer. 
you know, we put another rung on the loyalty ladder when, when you do things for them. Absolutely. Totally makes sense. Lifetime value. If you understand lifetime value, if you believe in it, you make bets on it. That was the number one thing that distinguished Brenton Hayden early on when I first met him. He knew what the number was and he actually believed in it. He was willing to make the investments. Rich, what were you modeling? Do, do you know of anybody else that does local events like this at scale? Like what were you modeling when you did this? Not, not really. Um, you know, when we first started doing the events, uh, you know, Jet Lending had been doing their event. So I guess a little bit was Jet. You know, they were doing a monthly event. So we partnered actually with another hard money lending company. And we ended up, you know, taking the two big dogs on the block and, and kind of going together. Um, we we kind of just discontinued that because we knew we were kind of at our limit uh, on size. And we wanted to see if we could scale it even more. But, you know... There's not really anybody to model after. Uh, Houston is really unique because there's just so much networking going on. Other other cities don't have this advantage. And I think, you know, the nationwide, there's a big opportunity if you're the first one in the market to do this. I'm telling you, these vendors, they're getting business out of this deal. or They wouldn't be here for two and three years doing this deal. And, you know, they're paying the bill. And they're happy to do it. So who's driving the butts in seats? How do you get a thousand people there? Is it just you guys? Email blast. Email blast. That's it. It's Facebook and email blast. We don't, we don't boost our posts in Facebook. We just post in Facebook. We post in, you know, a couple of those, whatever those Instagrams and Twitters and tweets and twits, or whatever you want to call them. We have MailChimp and we send out our, our blast. We do a Wednesday event. We email uh, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And we show they show up. And are you emailing customers, people that just signed up for that list? Everybody that's ever been on our list that hadn't told us to take them off gets an email. We're gonna get sending out about seven or eight thousand on our list. And then Jet's probably got another seven to ten thousand on their list. A lot of the folks are the same people. Uh, but every month, the first thing we say is, "How many people are here for the first time?" And they'll have a little orange dot on their name tag. We put a little sticker on their name tag if they're a first-timer so we can identify them walking up to, to talk to them um, so our staff will know uh, that they're new. And I'm, in, in the room, it'll be 30% or more raise their hand. Talk to me about revenue streams. How can you afford this? Yes, you are making a financial investment, but you're smart because you're subsidizing it. What's the cost associated with the the venue, the bar, and do these other vendors there also chip in? How does all, how do all the finances work? Yeah, so you know the vendors pay a flat fee per month to to be a vendor, and that probably covers between eighty and ninety percent of the cost. You know, so we're spending less than a couple of thousand dollars a month to have the event and buy beer and food for everybody you know some months we don't pay anything depending on you know what the tab looks like so um, it's it's a great event for us you know and over time we've learned that if we just focus just a little bit on, on getting a couple of good new good vendors we can cover almost all of it you know at times we were writing a pretty big check but we realized that um, if we'll really focus on the vendors we bring more value to our customer at the same time and it just covers the thing. You know, we don't get a whole lot of direct business from it. We we haven't quantified a lot. But once one or two here and there will bring 20 units, 15 units. And then we do get them. Um, but you got to remember, the person that's at the event that called off radio and he pulls the trigger because of the event, that goes towards radio because the source in our system is already radio, right? So... 
it's really hard to quantify exactly. Just like Google, when we when we look at a source of Google, well, we're, we're training our, our call center to say, oh, well, how did you get to Google? Because a lot of the Google, self-sourced Google is really radio. We want to really drill down to where did they, where did this lead come from? And the hardest one to quantify is the event because usually they got to the event because they were in somebody's database already from some other source, but they may have pulled the trigger or increased the number of units they have because of the event. All right. So let's go level up, talk about some unit economic issues. What does your, your assumption that you make for how long a customer will stick around for your average customer? You know, Renner's Warehouse says an average customer is nine years, and we're not nine years old, so I couldn't tell you. Um, but we assume it's twelve to fourteen thousand dollar value, and I know there's numbers all over the board. You know, and one of the things we talk about churn churn rates in in uh, property management. We all deal with that. You know, and, and we have we have a goal of getting our churn below a certain percentage, and it's Churn is inevitable. You're going to have people leave you because they're moving back into the house. They, uh, their mother died and they need money, so they're selling the house. You know, so uh, there's some percentage you just can't stop. You know, you, you have to stop the bleeding from, you know, if you're if you're not performing and they're leaving, you want to stop that. But the lifetime value of a customer, I, I, most people when they throw out a number, they don't really know. They're making it up. And I kind of made I kind of made that number up too. Until you're around for thirty or forty years, how do you know that nine is average? Well, but but the point is that there's an assumption that you make, and if you actually believe the assumption, it influences your behavior. That's when why historically a renter's warehouse has been willing to pay more to acquire customers, willing to go up market, consider radio, etc. One of the places I was going with this is you just brought up churn. Well, there are two types of churn: there's customer churn and there's revenue churn. And the, with the latter, that can actually be influenced by expanding wallet share over time. So you're hosting these big events, you're you're reinvesting in the relationships. You're hedging tra- traditional churn. Why? Because most people leave out of apathy. It's not that I was offended. I just stopped feeling anything about our relationship. And therefore, I went with the next vendor that made me feel something. But by focusing on getting your existing customers to buy more properties, that's the opportunity for negative negative revenue churn, which basically means the number, instead of having a, a churn rate of 2% per month, it's actually a negative number because your existing customers are spending more money. What was your original, if you know offhand early on, what was your original average number of properties per customer? Where are you trying to get that number to? Yes, our average is about 1.6. We would honestly like to have five. I don't see us ever getting there. Um, So I guess it's silly to have a goal that you, you don't anticipate hitting just because we constantly had that one property owner. Uh, so it's going to keep pushing the number down. Our goal for the end of this year is 1.75. Uh, so we'll see see how that works. You know, with 1,200 units or so, you know, one big customer coming in or one big customer leaving. I mean, we lost a guy with 50 plus units uh, because he's vertically integrating his business and he wanted to do it himself. And he said, "Please keep the door open. If I fail at this, I'll be back." You know, but you know that skewed our number a lot. One guy with 50 units leaves. That's that changes everything. So, you know, 1.75 is our goal for this year. Long term, I would hope we could do up to five. You know, there, there's a lot of risk in those bigger owners too. When they do leave, that's a big hit to your to your bottom line. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I talked to uh, Steve Schultz the other day, president of NARPM. He was saying he really likes to have that one-to-one ratio. And so you're less vulnerable when people leave. I love that you have a goal with that ratio. The reality is that is a gigantic lever in your business if you can actually move that number up. Rich, I want to transition now to some rapid fire questions we do at the end of every show. The first of these is how much is too much to pay for a new property management contract? That's an interesting question. Average customer profile. Average customer profile. Ballpark with me. How much is too much? Where do you tap out, Rich? You know, it's interesting because Renner's Rouse Corporate is is acquiring so many units, you know, and they don't they don't publish what they pay for the units. Uh, I say a couple of three thousand dollars is not out of the question anymore because I I see this industry going to a to a less fragmented. Uh, more uh, institutional model and with economies of scale and the guys that are coming in the market, you know, you know, Warren Buffett may be buying everybody out one day. So I think that the, the multiples will be pretty nice for us because it's just an annuity. You know, you got this money coming in and you did, you know, two, two and a half, three and a half times EBITDA is a pretty nice number. It's a pretty big number. Now, when you say that, are you talking about in the context of buying a contrast through acquisitions or customer acquisition cost for, like, let's say, paid advertising? Yeah. So, you know, I, how much to pay through paid advertising? Is, I'm talking about to just write a check to buy units and, and turn a switch in there. And you I'm, t- I'm talking paid advertising. Where would you tap yeah, out? We're, for- we're, we're, you know, $840 is our cost. If I, if I was over a thousand, I'd be worried. And I would be, I would, I would consider us failing at our sales funnel, because because what you look at, you know, again, we're back to that discussion of overhead. When you pay eight hundred forty dollars for a new unit, you're really paying more than that because you have staff that's having to do that, right? So my number is a thousand. So as long as we're below a thousand, I'm comfortable, but I'm absolutely not happy uh, because every penny counts on acquisition. Uh, and, and, you know, in efficiency, uh, if our closing ratios are, are faltering or our cost per lead is going up or our cost per acquisition is going up, we got to look at why and maybe, maybe our message is, is off a little. So we, we constantly look at lowering that and in my mind, a thousand is what we look at right now. Love it. I love you have a specific number there. Question number two, what advice do you wish that somebody had given you on day one when you started this business? <laughs> That's easy. So I would have taken another several hundred thousand dollars. I would have put it in, a, in an operating account and ramped the advertising much faster. From day one. Sure. Just dig a hole. The, the revenue will come um, as long as you have the procedures in place to handle the, rev- the volume and the personnel in place to handle the volume. Um, there's no reason to start advertising with two or three thousand and then end up at 30 or 40 or 50,000. Start at 20,000 a month. And just trust that you can do it and have confidence that you can do it and just do it. Because all it did was prolong the amount of time it took for us to get to a nice revenue number. How much infrastructure needed to sit behind that advertising? If you're starting off doing 20K a month, does that mean that you're also starting off to committing to have at least one dedicated BDM in place? You probably need one for sure. You know, we call it inside sales, but, you know, BDM type person. You, you also have property management people and maintenance people and accounting people ready to go. So you, you have to hire a little bit ahead 
if you're growing that fast. Now think about it. If you're at 1,200 units and you add 300 units, you know, you could absorb that and go, well, I better go hire another person. It's starting to, we're starting to overwhelm everyone, right? Well, if you're at 100 and you add 300 units, you got a problem unless you have the people ready to go. So they need to be hired and trained where they're almost bored around the office because when you add 300 to a, to a you double the size of a company, you, you're going to have customer service issues if you're not hiring ahead. You can't plan on making a, a big profit if you want to grow faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think folks think of it as like a chicken or the egg type problem. And you, for your specific ambitions and goals, you'd rather make an assumption of growth, commit to figuring that out, and plan to, to hire accordingly. No, you can do it and do it. Who do you learn from, Rich? I use a business coach, and I learn a lot from him. Um, I've turned off the radio in the car, and I've turned on Audible. You know, I, I read about two books a week on Audible and I promo about one and a half to two times speed because I'm ADD and I can't wait for him to say the next sentence. They need to speed it up a little for me. Um, depending on the, the author, they don't sound too good at two times speed. But um, you have to continue to, to evolve. You have to continue to adapt. Uh, I talk about that in the home investors model as well. There's a lot of real estate investors who are not real estate investors anymore because 2008 happened. The model changes. You have to be able to adapt to change in the market. You have to be able to say, hey, now it's time to buy when everyone else is selling. Now it's time to rent. Like today in Houston, the higher end stuff is is, is suffering. Uh, it's time to possibly buy that stuff and, and watch it appreciate when a world hook comes back because it's going to. Uh, so you have to adapt. And, you know, I, 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 there's a lot of smart guys. I, you know, I like Simon Sinek. Start with why people do business with with you because of why you do it, not because you got a better mousetrap. So you know, and I learn. Heck, I learn from you. You know, I, I I'll tell a story about you if you don't mind. Please go ahead. I, I met you at a renter's warehouse convention, and you spoke about time to call back a lead. You taught me a lot about how important it was that one minute versus four minute callback, right? So I am, since then have completely hammered my staff. Everything gets dropped when there's a lead call, everything, right? And what I noticed about you is you spoke for about an hour and never said uh or um one time. And I just, it stuck in my mind that it's so important when you're in front of a group to be knowledgeable and to be a little, you weren't like this, professional seminar guy you were just a guy you but you you came across as so professional because you didn't stammer stutter it, it carried a lot more weight from somebody that spoke the way you did I was, I was pretty impressed it was pretty neat I still remember it today I appreciate that that was one of my early speaking gigs yeah I spent a lot of time on that and I deeply deeply enjoyed speaking to that group because I knew that I was on the same wavelength and being taken seriously and it's awesome to hear that from you because I feel like speed to call is like this kind of pet issue of mine but it's nice to hear some people take it as seriously as I do last question for you Rich are entrepreneurs born or bred they're born. You know, we use disc profile in our business and you can't tell somebody that is a C that all they care about is books and numbers and having everything a certain way. You can't teach them to, to be a risk taker and be a visionary. You can't do it. 
you're either a visionary or you're not. And we, we subscribe to, you know, the Gino Wigman, you know, EOS system, that type of person, you know, I have 20 new ideas a day and I put them on a little, I got a little memo pad on my phone and I put those ideas, 19 of them are horrible ideas, right? But I think they're great every time I think of them. Well, my wife is an accountant. She is not ever going to take a risk. She's not ever going to start a company. But when I start a new company, she goes, I trust you. You always figure it out, right? When when we don't have money to pay our bills at home, she goes, I know it'll be fine. I go, honey, I'll take care of it. I know we need money. You have to have that mentality. You have to be. And, and to be honest, most people consider being an entrepreneur a big risk. I really see the opposite. We own Renters Warehouse. We have 700 customers. And if a customer leaves me, the world doesn't end, right? If the market doesn't do so great and we don't rent houses as fast as we need to, the world doesn't come to end. But if I'm working for GE Oil and Gas and they decide that they're going to merge with, oh, who they just merge with? I can't even think of it. They just merged with somebody. And now there's two of me and I get laid off because the other guy's been there longer. I got a problem. So, Banks look at it as an entrepreneur's more risk. The world thinks of it as more risk, but I think it's less because you don't have somebody standing over you with the power to just end your career in one, one second. Spoken like a true entrepreneur, it's riskier to ask for permission than to just take initiative. I couldn't agree more. Rich, I appreciate you coming on this show today. If folks want to learn more about what you're up to, um, where's somewhere that they can go to learn a little bit more about what you're doing out there in Houston? You know, nationwide, you just go to renterswarehouse.com and then just pick the Houston office if you're not in Houston. If you're in Houston, it'll it'll know you're in Houston and suggest the Houston office. We're at 713-224-RENT. I'm rich at renterswarehouse.com. If you want to visit about the events, I'm, I'm happy to do it. You want to talk about real estate, I'm your guy. Just That's all I want to talk about anyway. So, um, And Jordan, I really appreciate the invite. It's nice to see you again. I, I, I got your email for the PM Grow Conference coming up so i highly recommend anybody that hasn't been to that you know I, I know how much time it took you guys to prepare for that because you really you guys went all out with the scribe and with the videos and and that really brought a lot of value to us because you write as fast as you can in one of those two-day conferences and you just don't get it all and then you forget about 90 percent of it when you get to the bar the first night so it's nice to be able to rewind and and see that stuff again and i think that there was a lot of value in that for us. Awesome. Glad to hear it. You're the kind of audience that we are catering to smart, motivated entrepreneurs. That's what's distinct about the PM Grow Summit. Well, Rich, thanks again for coming on the show. And hopefully I will see you in this upcoming February at next year's PM Grow. Man, thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Have a great day. All right. We'll be in touch.